Our sermon scripture comes this morning from Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 15. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him. Cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening to the Lord, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. We are diving into another B side individual from Scripture. So this is someone who doesn't get the spotlight too often. Uh, So if you haven't guessed from our scripture reading this morning, that individual we're looking at is Lydia. And I usually start with something like a Star Wars analogy or some kind of like obscure film reference. But today, I want to start with something new for me, a sports analogy. Uh, As someone from the Chicago area, I was obligated to watch the 2016 World Series. That's baseball for those of you who didn't know that. Uh, But we actually uh, just had a World Series winner, the Dodgers, so yay for them. No no Dodgers fans, that's okay. Um, But uh, the 2016 World Series involved the Chicago Cubs, who hadn't won a World Series in like 108 years. They hadn't even made it into the World Series in 71 years. So if you had spent like any time in Chicago, this was a big cultural event. You had to watch the final games. Uh, but for me, I was never really that big into baseball. Honestly, I, I passively watched a handful of games before, but I thought it was one of the more boring sports. Uh, but I put the final game on because it was the thing to do, and it was an amazing experience. I'm not just saying that because I'm from the Chicago area. Obviously, it's very cathartic to see your home team win, but I came away with a new appreciation for that sport because there were many dynamics, many strategic plays and rules and details of baseball that I never knew before until I watched that game. And I came out of the the final game thinking, 
wow, baseball is a lot more interesting and a lot more exciting than I thought because now I understand the details of the sport. And, and I thought maybe I'd be a baseball guy in the future, which didn't really happen, but I have a, a good appreciation for it. And I actually had a similar experience with this narrative in Acts, where it's easy to go through it and to not think too much of it. There's not a lot of action here. There's no demon possession. There's no earth-shattering miracles. There's no great oratories from Paul or his company. Uh, and honestly, when I was considering preaching on the story, I thought, you know, is there really enough here for a compelling sermon on Lydia? She's really only mentioned in like three verses here. And, and that was a really silly thought, because as I dug into the details of this passage, the details that are easy to skim over, I realized that Lydia's story is one of great importance for the early church, and it's also of great importance for us today. So I want to analyze four details of Lydia's life, particularly details of her identity, not just so we can say, wow, that's interesting, like baseball, but that we can be motivated to live as Christians that submit to God's plans, that seek truth, that are faithful, and that are hospitable. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to be over this time together. God, we thank you for your word, and especially for the book of Acts, which shows us these amazing things that you did in and through your church. We thank you for our sister in Christ, Lydia, who gives us a beautiful example of what it means to come to you and to follow you. God, use this time to call us deeper into ministry. We don't want to be a church where only some of us are engaged in the work you're doing, but we all want to lay our lives at your feet, that you may use all of us for the building up of your church and the furthering of your kingdom. May we not come away from your word just thinking, oh, that was interesting, but may your words compel our hearts to be changed by what we hear. Ready our hearts even now. Amen. So we're jumping right in to the middle of the book of Acts. So I think we need a quick orientation just for the context that we find ourselves in. So the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, is a historical account of the various works and missionary efforts of the early church during the first century after Jesus' resurrection. The book is most likely written around 70 AD, give or take a decade, by a guy named Luke, as Sean mentioned. And yes, that's the same Luke who wrote the book of Luke, which we are going through with Pastor Mike, so this will be a good companion piece. Uh, now, the book of Acts is what I would call an ensemble piece, following several individuals, Stephen, Peter, Philip, James, just to name a few. But the latter chapters really begin to focus on the missionary journeys of this guy named Paul, formerly Saul. Now, most of us are pretty familiar with Paul, right? I mean, he wrote about a third of the New Testament with his epistles or these letters to various churches um, in the early times of the Christian church. And what's really cool about Acts is that we actually get to see Paul establishing many of these congregations and visiting a lot of these cities to preach the gospel for the first time. Now in Acts 16, we find ourselves in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. And his intention on this journey is to revisit churches that he established during his first journey and to encourage them and to make sure they're doing well. So he has this very pastoral intent when he's setting out. So he sets out with his ministry partner named Silas, and then a guy named Timothy joins them along the way. Uh, but soon we learn that God has additional plans for this journey. 
And that's what we see in our passage today in Acts 16, verses 6 through 10. We see that they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went to Troas. We don't exactly know what it looks like when it says they are forbidden by the Holy Spirit or that they're not allowed by the Spirit of Jesus. They could be receiving visions or dreams Uh, There could even be a voice from heaven, possibly. There could have been even physical, real obstacles that God used to block them. Some scholars believe that the Spirit of Jesus may actually be distinct from the Holy Spirit, and that this is an actual vision of Jesus himself that steered them away from these specific areas. But regardless of the specifics, we know that the Holy Spirit is a giver of wisdom. He's a giver of insight. He's a giver of discernment. And whether through visions or by the simple intuition given by God, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are obedient to the Lord's leading. So they end up in Troas. If you looked at a historical map, Troas is a coastal city on a little peninsula of Asia Minor on the Aegean Sea. This would be modern-day northwest Turkey, if that gives you a, a helpful way to be oriented. And when we talk about Asia Minor, we're, of course, not talking about modern-day Asia. We're talking about the Roman province of Asia Minor. In fact, all the places that are listed here are places that are contained within the powerhouse of the Roman Empire, which was the leading power in that day. And the company is led by God essentially to the corner of Asia Minor, the corner of this province, with really nowhere to go by land based on how God has led them. Then Paul has this vision. In verse 9, we see a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, visions like this are not uncommon in the biblical narrative and not even uncommon in the book of Acts. But what makes this vision distinct is that it's not some sort of angelic being, not an angel of the Lord, not a divine being. No, it's just a man, a man of Macedonia, the province across the sea to the west. Europe. That's right. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke are called to be the first Christian missionaries to Europe. And that was not a part of the plan. Notice how I added Luke to this missionary company. That's right, because in verse 10, notice how the third-person perspective actually shifts to plural first-person perspective. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So many believe this is now a transition into more of a personal travel journal of Paul's instead of eyewitness accounts that he would have gathered. So it's likely to assume that Luke joins their journey in Troas. So now we have a party of four on a mission from God with a vision of this Macedonian man heading across the Aegean Sea. After a couple of stops, they make it to the city of Philippi, ready to preach the gospel to the men of Macedonia. But what did they find? They find a group of women. So the first detail that I want to explore about Lydia's identity is that she is a woman. 
And now this seems pretty obvious, you know, duh, of course Lydia's a woman. But let's, let's explore, like, what significance that would have for these missionaries and for her. Now, Paul is often referred to as the minister of the Gentiles, uh, non-Jews. While Peter went to minister to the Jews, Paul went to minister to the non-Jews. But it was customary for him in a new city to seek out the Jewish community first. Often we, pa- we see Paul begin in a new city by immediately teaching in the synagogues. But what's uncommon here is that we see in verse 12 that they remained in the city some days before any account of preaching or teaching happens. Continuing on in verse 13, it says, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. Now the terminology, a place of prayer, can refer to a synagogue. Your synagogue would be your place of prayer, right? So these missionaries head out of the city based on hearsay about some place of prayer, some synagogue, some gathering of Jews by the riverside. And that's pretty odd. You know, why is that? Why don't they just go to the synagogue? Well, most likely Philippi did not have an official synagogue. Traditionally, for a city to have a synagogue, there would have to be at least 10 Jewish men residing in that city. So it's very likely that there are few Jews living in this very Greco-Roman city. These women were probably just a small remnant of those faithful to the God of Israel in Philippi. We see in verse 12 that Philippi was a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Philippi was on a major road between the city of Rome and the province of Asia, and it was actually founded by retired Roman army veterans. So it would primarily be a Gentile, non-Jewish city, with most residents worshiping the many Greco-Roman gods of the time. So Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, looking for a Jewish synagogue, and maybe even looking for this Macedonian man from Paul's vision, stumble upon a group of women gathered to pray by the river. This would have been a very unexpected sight for them. And whenever the Bible includes a narrative about women, our ears should perk up. You know, in our 21st century context, we would expect some level of gender representation between men and women, so we don't really think anything of it. But for the first century, that would not be the case at all. In the Roman Empire during this time, a respectable woman was not allowed to leave the house unless a male accompanied her. A wife was not supposed to eat or interact with male guests in her husband's home. Women did not have the same opportunities for education. It was not even acceptable for them to speak in public. The common woman had a very low status in their culture. Women were treated as inferiors. They were essentially treated as property of men. Evidence shows that even many synagogues of the time had physical separation between the men and women, a totally different type of social distancing that we're not going to practice. And this treatment of women was not only prevalent in Greco-Roman or Jewish culture, but in many cultures, in many societies of that time, women were viewed as less than. So what we see in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, is very, very different. How did Jesus view women? When preparing this sermon, I came upon a quote, and it says, Out of all founders of religions and religious orders, Jesus stands alone as the one who did not discriminate in some way against women. By word or deed, he never encouraged the disparagement of a woman. Jesus not only breaks the cultural treatment of women by not deriding them, but he actually edifies them. 
by talking to them in public, like the Samaritan woman at the well, and by even inviting them to participate in his teaching and in his ministry. A good example of this is the Mary and Martha story in Luke's other book of Luke, and I I don't want to steal Pastor Mike's thunder, but we're just going to look at this for a brief moment. If you've been around the church a lot, you're familiar with this story. Jesus is staying at the house of these two sisters, Mary and Martha, which would have been scandalous in and of itself, but Martha is all busy. She's preoccupied with serving and being a good host, while Mary is simply sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. And we read that and we think, oh, you know, that's a nice story because, you know, we shouldn't worry and be preoccupied with other things. We should really just focus on Jesus. And that's 100% correct. Amen to that. But there's a whole other layer to this story, a whole other scandalous layer to this story. Luke 10.39 says, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. This is the customary position and customary posture of a disciple. By sitting at his feet, she is submitting herself to a rabbi's teaching, Rabbi Jesus. You can almost see the other 12 disciples sitting around and feeling really uncomfortable by this, like, you know, is Jesus going to call her out for breaking these cultural religious traditions? But no, Jesus doesn't call her out. He doesn't scold her. He commends her and says that that is the correct position for all to have before him. We see a similar posture in today's scripture, actually, in verse 13, where the missionaries sit down and speak to the women, reflecting that same posture of rabbinic teaching in the synagogue. Paul and his company actually continue the bold countercultural legacy of Jesus by giving these women the time of day. Seen by the women by the river, they're not repelled by that, they're not discouraged by that, but they use the opportunity to boldly teach the gospel of Christ to these women. And what did that mean for Lydia? You know, something that may seem very commonplace for us would have been a huge gesture towards her. She's given dignity, she's given value, and she's given the good news of Jesus. Their interaction with with these women, it would have been unacceptable in the culture, but it's blessed by God because men and women are of equal value before God, period. At Vine Street, we celebrate our sisters in Christ who are of immeasurable value as the church and to the church. And as Christians, we must boldly be standing for the dignity of all peoples made in the image of God, especially in a culture where that shifts around us and shifts away from that fundamental truth. And if we ever find ourselves creating divisions of equality, whether intentionally or unintentionally, between men and women, old folks and young folks, black and white, the native-born or the foreigner, we must repent of our pride and turn once again to the example left by Jesus. So I said the foreigner with a little bit of emphasis because that's our next point. Lydia was a woman, but Lydia was also a foreigner. As if they missed the mark on the Macedonian man by encountering a group of women, they further missed the mark by their first convert not being a Macedonian at all. There's a little bit of irony here. And I think God delights in the unexpected. Those are the times when we have the opportunity to place our trust in him more. So if you're caught off guard by the unexpected, use that opportunity to rely on God. Now back into verse 14. 
One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Listen, guys, Thyatira is not in Macedonia. It's not in Europe. It's back at Asia Minor, where they just came from. And to make things even more spicy, Thyatira was in a district called Lydia in Asia Minor. So that's pretty weird. It's possible that Lydia was her birth name. If any young couples out there are considering naming their next child Kentucky, I am not advocating for that. It's also possible that she was just so closely associated with her Lydian origins that that kind of became her common name that others used. Or it's even possible to be more of just a general title like the Lydian. And this has led some scholars to believe that Lydia may actually be referenced in the book of Philippians by a different name, which is an interesting thought since there are some women referenced in that book. And these are all interesting thoughts, but we can't really know for certainty why her name was Lydia. But what is certain is that Lydia is living in a land that's not her own. And it makes her relationship to this group of God-fearing women all the more interesting and all the more important. See, Lydia most likely moved to Philippi for her business. As we read in verse 14, she's a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now, her hometown, Thyatira, was probably known for producing purple dyes. Actually, it wasn't probably known. It was known for producing purple dyes to use on fabrics. Uh, Thyatira was a very strategic place for this business, being near the chief rivers and connected to coastal cities by good roads. And they would actually get the color by harvesting sea snails that lived in the Mediterranean and its connected rivers. And extracting the dye from a snail apparently was a process. It involved tens of thousands of snails, substantial labor, and it was very expensive because of that. So Lydia's customers were probably pretty high class. Maybe Babylonian buyers who used it for temple curtains or to decorate their idols, or even the Roman imperial family who wore the color on state occasions. So based on this, we can assume that Lydia was probably pretty well off by her trade. But it's also very likely she was part of a dyer's guild. Yes, there were dyer's guild. Uh, there was a dyer's guild in Thyatira, so she could have been representing maybe a greater firm that sold dyes. Uh, she may have moved there specifically to represent the guild's interest in Philippi, because we do know that Philippi was pretty strategically placed for business with greater Rome, and as we read, it was a leading city in the district of Macedonia. So here I am talking about snails and dyes and guilds and all this interesting stuff. Why are these details so important? Well, put yourself in her shoes for a minute. Imagine that you have to move for out-of-state work. You're in a new state, a new city, and you, being a worshiper of God, are trying to find a new church. So uh, you look at your options, but there's not a lot of options in your city. Perhaps you move out of the Bible Belt and you go, you know, somewhere up north, and the only church you hear about is like 10 people praying in a park. You're like, okay, so you show up, and there's no building, there's no music team, there's no sound system, there's no welcome packet, there's no Donnie with the connect card, you know, there's no free coffee, there's no formal childcare, they're really lacking on programming and fun events, and there isn't even consistent preaching. Just a few people praying in a park. Would you keep going to that church? 
I imagine it would be difficult for most of us to want to go to that church long term. But these women show a distinct faithfulness to God by gathering to worship him, despite the fact that they don't have a formal synagogue in their city. Now imagine that same scenario, but imagine that everyone is from a different background than you. Everyone is from a different culture than you. Everyone is of a different ethnicity than you. And you always feel like you're on the outside. That further solidifies the faithfulness of Lydia in particular, because in addition to Lydia being a woman and Lydia being a foreigner, Lydia was also a Gentile. One who heard us, in verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The term worshiper of God was reserved for those Gentiles who were sympathizers with Judaism, who observed the religious traditions, but they were not able to be full Jewish converts due to their heritage. As Dan mentioned last week, if you remember, where was the location of Gentile worshipers in the synagogue? It was the very outer court. They were pushed to the outmost court of the synagogue, separated from those of Israelite descent. Non-Jews could engage in the religious practices to some extent, but they would not be regarded as the true people of God. Presumably, this group of women by the river were primarily composed of Jewish women, so Lydia would probably be the last person anyone expected to understand these teachings of Paul. Yet who is highlighted among these women as the one who gets it? Lydia. In verse 14, we see that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Do we think it was because Lydia was the smartest, that she knew the most theology, that she had the greatest insight? No, it was because the Lord opened her heart. And she believed not by nature, but by grace. Faith in the gospel did not come out of her own strength, but it was a gift of the Lord. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the truth she heard. This reminds me of a, a writing of Paul's in 1 Corinthians 2, the letter to the church at Corinth, where he's writing about wisdom. And he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit for the Spirit teaches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. God, the Spirit, is the one who gives Lydia spiritual ears to hear, and he is the one who gives us understanding and opens our hearts to respond. So God opens the heart of Lydia, the woman, the foreigner, the Gentile, perhaps the least expected in this group to understand the gospel. Are there people that you know who may seem like the least expected people to understand and to come to God? Pray that the Lord will open their hearts and also share the good news of the gospel with them boldly. He is sovereign over all. He has provided the way and he has a plan for each of us. 
He is calling us to respond, and he's opening our hearts to respond to him. So we must listen. We must submit ourselves to Jesus, and we must rely on our great helper, the Holy Spirit, to guide us. And what does Lydia do with all of this? She responds, because Lydia, number four, is faithful. Lydia is faithful. In verse 14, we see the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and in verse 15, after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed on us. Lydia asks if they judge her to be faithful to the Lord. She does not say, if you judge me to be a great woman or a devout woman, but faithful. And Lydia has three responses to the evidence of this faithfulness. One, she is baptized, and then she shares the gospel with her household, number two. And number three, she shows hospitality. So let's look at her baptism. Lydia was baptized, probably right there in that river she had been praying by. And there's a sense of immediacy here, right? Like, after Paul is done speaking, she's immediately baptized. Lydia does not hesitate to confess her sins and give her life to Jesus. She immediately responds. And then, sharing with her household. Her conversion does not only affect her, it is spread out into her entire household. And this shows her great passion for the gospel, that she was eager to share it with those she lived with. You know, our faith in Jesus it isn't a personal thing, not just a personal thing, of course. It's something that should emanate off of who we are and be shared to all those around us. Now, a household would imply family members. A household would probably imply children, and based on her wealth and profession, even servants and workers. The notable detail here is that it's called her entire household and my house. She is shown to be the head of the household, which is interesting. Not her husband's household, but hers. No mention of a husband at all. It's possible that she could be single. It's possible that she could even be divorced. But based on this terminology and the culture of the times, the most likely explanation for this is that Lydia is a widow. And we know throughout scripture and history that there's always been a beautiful relationship between the church of Jesus and widows. Uh, first and foremost, the church is meant to care for widows, to comfort them, and to support them, partially because the majority of widows would have been of a poorer class. But we also see evidences of widows supporting Jesus and the early church. Pastor Mike has mentioned how women supported the ministry of Jesus when we've been going over Luke. And some of those women would have been widows, providing out of their means for Jesus and his disciples. We also hear of other widows in Acts, like Tabitha in Acts 9, who was full of good works and of charity. You know, we have some widows and widowers here at Vine Street, and a great priority for the rest of us is to care for them. How can God use us to provide stability, comfort, and support for them? And to our widows and our widowers, how can God use you to support our brothers and sisters in Christ through your presence, through your experience, through your wisdom, and through your resources. You know, here in Acts 16, we see Lydia fall into this category of a well-to-do widow that uses her resources to further the ministry of the church and the expansion of the kingdom of God. 
And then the third evidence of her faithfulness is her hospitality. Baptism and sharing the gospel are two things that we kind of expect would happen after someone believes in Jesus. But here we see an immediate response of hospitality and non-materialism. And we should actually expect that when someone comes to Christ. We see this generally as the early church is growing with new members as described in the earlier chapters of Acts that all who believed were together and they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to any that had need. And we also learn that there was not a single needy person among them. We even see this uh, in the Gospels, like with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. You know, Jesus kind of imposes himself to come over to his house, but then he brings salvation. And how does Zacchaeus respond? He gives half of his goods to the poor and he repays all those he's wronged. And even in this chapter, if you just look ahead to verse 33 of chapter 16 in Acts, this is the, the conversion of the jailer. And it says in verse 33 that the jailer took him or took them, meaning Paul and Silas, the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then what did he do? He brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And of course, we see the opposite of people who do not follow Jesus, like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, who turns away from Jesus because he does not want to give up his possessions to those in need. As Christians, we need to hold our homes, our belongings, our wealth with an open hand, allowing God to use them for his purposes. Our hospitality is not just being nice, you know, it's not just making sure we have pretty kept up houses. No, it's connected to what Christians would call stewardship, that ultimately all of our stuff is given to us by God, so that we use it for the glory of God. Lydia was blessed by God with having a well-paying job. She had a household. She had adequate room in her house. And she uses these things not only to support these missionaries, but to build up the entire church in Philippi. And we'll get to more on that in a minute. But how are we doing on hospitality and stewarding our resources? You know, I won't name names, but I know that some of you have housed students during their breaks in the semester. I know that some of you take care of your refugee neighbors. I know that some of you grow food and you share it with others. I know that some of you consistently have people over for dinner. I know a lot of you who've had church members over for holidays who may not have a place to go. Some of you host church events and retreats on your property. Some of you financially give to the church for years on end. And some of you had just invested loads of time, loads of effort and talents into the church. And there's been so much more happening in this congregation that goes unseen. And you all inspire me in this regard. So let us continue to do these things and to spur one another on to love and to good works, not for our enjoyment, not for our reputations, but for the glory of God. If I'm honest, I've found it pretty difficult to be hospitable in 2020. And I think this is a challenging time for us as Christians to be practically present in a lot of ways while loving our neighbors and respecting their physical safety at the same time. And I don't have per perfect, perfect examples of how to practice hospitality in such a confusing time, 
with quarantining and social distancing, but I would encourage us all to start small. While it's hard for us to be hospitable with a physical space, let us make hospitable spaces in our relationships. You know, where can we be a comfort with our words? Where can we be a place of rest by the ways we listen? And where can we be a shelter with our love? I hope that you would continue to consider this uh, throughout the week and even during our time of response today. How may God be calling you to be hospitable in a new way during 2020 and this pandemic? I would like for us to end in the book of Philippians, but before I flip over to that, as I said earlier, Lydia did not only use her home to support Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, but she used it to support the whole church at Philippi. Following their stay with Lydia, the rest of chapter 16 accounts Paul and Silas getting arrested for healing a girl of a demon. And that's the story where there's a great earthquake in the prison and the jailer gets converted and Paul and Silas are freed. And after all these great events, what happens? Look down to the very end of the chapter at verse 40. So they went out of the prison. And what did they do? They visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. What is implied from this short verse is that now more Christians are staying at Lydia's house. Lydia's house has become a hub for ministry in Philippi and a Christian safe house in Macedonia. And many believe that these are the early days of the church at Philippi, that Lydia's profession of faith may have been the start of this church a church that Paul later calls his joy and crown. You know, if you know anything about Philippians, out of all the churches that Paul writes to, the church at Philippi is the one that he's like very encouraged by, that he's very um, excited about. And we see in the book of Philippians that the church at Philippi continues to be known for their hospitality and their sharing of resources. I'm reading from Philippians 4, verses 15 and 16. It says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs. The Philippians' generosity actually comes up again in a different letter of Paul's to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 8 through 9. He says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you, meaning the church at Corinth. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So the Philippians supported Paul's ministry to these other churches through their finances, through their resources, and we can almost take a step back and see this legacy of Lydia the foreigner, the woman, the Gentile, the faithful, who offered her home and resources to be used by God. And look at what God can do with them. Hear these words from Paul in Philippians again, Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Their partnership in the gospel from the first day 
Now when we read about that first day, we can think back to Lydia. We can think back to this group of women by the river just gathered to pray. We can think of how she did not hesitate to respond, but was eager to partner with Paul and the work that God was doing in her city. So may this story inspire us this morning. May it inspire us to submit our ministry to God's plans. May it inspire us to be eager to seek truth and to spread the gospel. May it inspire us to be faithful in our responses to Jesus. And may we always be hospitable to one another and those in need. As Christians, our main source of inspiration, of course, is Jesus. We look to him not only to model our lives after his,